This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, our town hall with 9th District Congressman Adam Smith. He has been in the thick of negotiations with both the recent passage of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, as well as the fight to pass the $1.75 trillion Build Back Better Act, which would work in conjunction with the recently passed infrastructure bill to address things like child care, the climate crisis, health care, and so much more. Congressman Smith is the chair of the House Armed Services Committee. He's also a member of the New Democrat Coalition and the Congressional Progressive Caucus, as well as the Medicare for All Caucus. So he is uniquely situated to answer all manner of questions about the bill. I hope to stay tuned. It's next. Congressman Smith, it is always such a pleasure to welcome you back to the town hall. How are you, sir? I am well, Stephen. How are you? It's always great to be here. Good, good, good. I'm doing fine. Uh, and, you know, we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about the Build Back Better Act, as Kat said. But you know, I thought maybe we would start with the recent passage of the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure framework package. We can shorthand that as BIF, if you'd like. What are your thoughts generally about the passage of the BIF? Yeah, well, my base thought is we should stop calling it the BIF and come up with butter acronym. That just <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I don't know if that the marketing department was working on that. I don't <laughs> think that's what they would come up with, but it is what it is. Um, well, two thoughts about it. First of all, I think it's it's an important piece of legislation. Well, three now that I think about it. Important piece of legislation, I think it's going to make a difference. Um, you know, certainly, you know, our, our infrastructure has been a challenge um, for a long time, um, crumbling, not up to date. You know, there's a lot of focus on roads and bridges, and certainly that's part of it. But there's a lot of money in here for public transit. There's crucially a lot of money in here to try to, you know, fix our water supply. I mean, you've seen places from Flint, Michigan to Mississippi to Texas to Newark, New Jersey that can't even get clean water. So to place the emphasis on that, there's also money for, you know, expanded broadband access, which is so increasingly important in terms of economic divide. Um, you know, people who can work remotely, um, who have those skills and have those resources have much more opportunities, um, you know, and, you know, there's also uh, money in there for building the electric uh, stations for cars. If we're going to move to a clean energy future, you know, the bill's not everything I would have liked it to have been. I'm disappointed in the way that it was negotiated, that the house was sort of, you know, pushed out of those negotiations and they just did it in the Senate. Um, it could have been a better bill, but it's a pretty good bill. Um, and, you know, at, at the ripe old age of 56 now, I've learned that making the perfect the enemy of the good is one of the great mistakes of life. So I try not to do that. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I think it is important from a Democratic perspective to show that Congress can function. I think it's one of the unfair aspects of the current situation that people say, well, Democrats are in charge of everything. So therefore, if there's anything wrong in the country, it is by definition their fault because we've been in charge of everything for, you know, like 10 months now. I mean, that's ridiculous, first of all, because that's not the way the Constitution was set up. It's not a, a parliamentary system where you win and you get to govern. Um, the Senate's 50 seats, barely got it. You know, we've got the filibuster, we've got all manner of different things. But as long as we are perceived that way, to be able to show the country that we can get something done and deliver it, I think is a positive. Um, and third, I think, you know, I think Pramila did the exact right strategy on this. And I think she leveraged um, this bill as long and as hard as she could to move along the Build Back Better thing. 
I know there are a lot of people that feel like, you know, letting this pass sort of gave up that leverage. Um, but number one, the leverage she used moved Build Back Better along. And I, I really believe legislatively in getting first downs. Um, you know, you've got to get to the end, but to get to the end, you got to start. Um, something that my friend and colleague who runs the Senate doesn't seem to understand in a lot of ways. But so, you know, we're moving it down. I think that's what that leverage did. The other thing about leverage is it's never as good as you think it is. Um, you figure out something that somebody else wants and you're like, okay, they want this. So therefore, if I don't give them that, that means they have to give me everything I want. Mm, there is a price pass, which they'll go, yeah, no, we're going to, we're, we're, we just can't, we're not going to do that. And I think we had reached that point and, and that Pramela played this exactly right and, and, and relented at the moment that was appropriate to put us in the best possible position to advance Build Back Better. Well, you know, I have uh, a million questions about the politics of all of this, and particularly the BBB, and you're touching on so much of it already. I would love to put a pin in that for just a second and, and really talk just very briefly about some of the great things that I think we're going to see from uh, the BIF uh, here in Washington State. Um, you know, you, you mentioned some of the infrastructure, uh, you know, dollars for uh, highways and bridges, public transportation, things like that. When can we expect to see this funding? I think it's going to start, um, you know, in this this fiscal year that we're in right now. So early next year, um, my staff sent me a little cheat sheet on some of the dollars that are already going out. But we're, we're in the billions uh, to help us with roads and bridges and crucially with transit, um, some of our water supplies. There's also some climate resiliency dollars in there to try to deal with wildfires and the, the effects of, of extreme climate events. Um, we're going to see that early next year, and then we'll see it spread out over a five or six year period after that in a pretty consistent basis. I mean, money, you know, certainly in the, tran you know, we're expanding um, sound transit, as you know, the costs of that are going up um, because of inflation issues and other things. So we'll see dollars that will enable us to cover and sort of meet um, our goals on uh, transit, both buses and light rail um, going forward. So I, I think we will absolutely see those dollars here locally that would be helpful in all those areas. Well, I mean, it's just an incredibly transformative bill. It's such a huge investment in uh, the public uh, infrastructure program that is long overdue. And so uh, I think it's going to be uh, a very welcome development here in the state. Uh, I do want to shift over now and talk about what we're here to talk about, which is the Build Back yeah. Better Act. Um, and as I said, we can talk about the politics, about how it may get passed. But I really do want to start with you on the substance. So um, this was originally proposed as a 3 $1.5 trillion package. It is now uh, priced at $1.75 trillion, and I should specify that is over 10 years. Um, and as Kat noted, it would provide for things like child care, climate action, health care, so much more. In fact, so much more. I mean, it's an enormous bill. I think there's a lot in it that will actually surprise people. I wonder if you can talk generally about some of the things that are that are in the BBB. Yeah. Well, just to be first of all accurate, it started as a $6 trillion bill. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's go right. Go back to, to what was put together. But the most important thing about this, and this is where I think we have really messed up the message horribly, um, is to talk about what it means. Why are we doing this? We, we are doing this because of economic inequality in America. And because the basic concept of the American dream is to have a balance between the private sector, individual responsibility, and then a system that is supported by the government and supported by the community that gives you a chance, okay, that, that, that achieves some measure of equality of opportunity by having access to decent schools, you know, access to education, access to healthcare, housing, food, 
the basic things that give you a chance then go out and pursue and, and, and compete. And we are losing that in America. The, the middle class is being hollowed out, all right? It's being hollowed out because of the concentration of wealth at the top. And there's a whole lot that I could say about that. But we have basically created an economy that disproportionately rewards shareholders and doesn't reward wage earners. And that has generated housing insecurity and food insecurity and healthcare insecurity and education insecurity to the point where people don't have the basic opportunities that even I had 40, 50 years ago, growing up in a blue collar family in SeaTac. Housing's too expensive, childcare's too expensive, education's too expensive. How do we begin to give people basic opportunities? Now, I don't think that, that, that we get rid of individual responsibility and all that, which is a lot, lot larger discussion and conversation, um, but you gotta give the basic level of opportunity there. And that's what this bill says. In, in the modern world, we have so much housing insecurity and there are over a hundred billion dollars here to help people with rental support, to help develop more low-income housing, to help develop the ability just to afford a place to live. I mean, for all the struggles that I may have had growing up, my father bought a house in SeaTac for $15,000, okay? You know, we had a place to live, all right? Well, if you don't have that, how the hell are you supposed to go out and, and pursue what you're supposed to pursue? Healthcare has become increasingly important and increasingly expensive. This bill expands access to healthcare. And perhaps to my mind, the most important aspect of this is really focusing on families, okay? Not focus on the family, lest you uh, get, get the wrong <laughs> Understood, yeah. yeah. But, but focus on families and, and childcare. That has become such a pressure point. In fact, I was reading an article about, does having children make you happy? Um, I, I will say this, as far as my wife is concerned, ha having an empty nest after 21 years makes you really happy, okay? <laughs> At least in, in, in our case, okay? Love our children dearly, but there's sort of that collective... Huh. But the point is, what, what they found is, it, it, in, in countries that give you some support, the answer to that question is yes, okay? If you know that you have family and medical leave, another key component of this bill, then you know if your child gets sick, you're not like, and it's hard not to be mad at your kid when it's like, you know, you're being sick is probably going to cost me my job, okay? H how do you then deal with that? Are you really sick? Are you sure? You know, to, to have to face that choice as a parent, it just aggravates all of society. I mean, we've also learned that education from basically, you know, conception to about the age of five is crucially important. Well, and you can tell this, if you have the money, you send your kids to pre-K starting at least at three or four. You do. If you have the money, you do. Okay. Well, a lot of people don't have the money. And then right away, huge difference in opportunity universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds is in this bill. So what this bill is about is the American dream, is the idea of equality of opportunity. And finally, after five decades of heading in the wrong direction, starting to head back in the right direction of creating equal opportunity for working poor, for blue collar people, as well as for the, those, you know, for people who are lucky enough to be born with wealthy parents um, or with parents who have connections. That's what it's about. And for the love of God, I wish we'd stop talking about five trillion and three trillion and one children and the centrists are corporate assholes and the liberals are, you know, ridiculous, you know, pie in the sky moron. Tell people what it is we're doing and why we're doing it, okay, and who we're trying to help. And if we do that, I think we can stop losing elections. 
boy, are you uh, you're kind of reading my mind here. There's so much that I want to unpack about everything that you've just said. I do want to square the circle on something that you talked about uh, in terms of childcare because you tweeted something that I think people will want to know and hear. You said in Washington, a family with two young children, and this is really just dovetailing tailing on what you said, would spend an average of 29% of their income on childcare for one year. The Build Back Better Act will provide funding to ensure that no family pays more than 7% of their income, 7% of their income on child. This is a game changer, right? I mean, this, this yeah. really can, can, can absolutely be an equalizer, ship the, the, the scales all up. Yeah, and I think, and that's that's a good way to talk about it. I, I'm a big believer in, you know, in, in finding the right argument. It's I think of it as the killer app, which is what they talk about in the tech world. And you find that argument, which is why I've been reasonably good at debate, is I can listen to the whole thing, and then I find the strength of my argument or the weakness in my opponent's argument and drive that home. And the stat that really drove it home for me was a New York Times piece a couple months ago that talked about how in your average country in Europe, they spend $14,000 a year on, on your average child. In America, the, the, the similar figure is $600. Mm. 14,000 to 600, okay? You know, and again, if you've got enough money, that's not a problem, okay? You, you, you pay for it. Most people don't. I mean, think about how expensive all of this stuff is. So that stat right there that you mentioned is exactly the type of stat that we need to talk, be talking about. And, and we're not, and all these people, they're gonna have to be working. I mean, it's not like, you know, we're gonna just give it to you and then you can, you know, hang out and do nothing, okay? It, it gives you a chance. And I think that's the be the best way to describe it. And that's why I, I my, my staff and I emphasize that status. I think it drives home the point. I completely agree. And yeah, and I, I do have a number of questions about messaging, particularly as we go into the 2022 cycle. Uh, we had our first audience question. Rosemary from Indivisible Eastside asks, what climate provisions remain in the BBB Act? Um, this, the main focus in the BBB Act on climate is on incentives. And it's about, you know, if my staff is to be believed, um, $555 billion, basically. And it's tax credits, you know, a lot of the resiliency investments that we talked about, I've got it right here. Um, investments, incentives for clean energy technology. A lot of it is tax credits and also um, programs to help fund the technology that is necessary to get us off of fossil fuels. Now, what it doesn't have that a lot of people talked about was um, carbon tax or basically sticks, if you will, right. um, things that will punish people for using carbon to get them off of that. I would have been in favor of that um, to try to move us towards a clean energy future. But I think the investments that are in here, again, at the moment, as it's being negotiated, $555 billion of economic incentives to develop wind, solar, biofuels. Um, even I was... Uh, Hydrogen, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, liquid hydrogen is potentially a game changer in terms of getting us to volume on, on a clean burning source of energy. Um, improved battery technology, improved energy transmission so you don't lose as much of it. There's all kinds of technologies out there that could really be game changers in getting us off of fossil fuels. This enables people to invest in that and drives dollars into those technologies at an unprecedented level. You know, you're talking about carrots and sticks. We know a certain uh, senator from West Virginia had a lot of them stripped out uh, of, yeah. of, of that, that bill. Um, but uh, the, the incentives remain, and, and, and many are good. Uh, Martha with North Kitsap Indivisible asks, are there incentives for buying electric vehicles in this bill? Uh, what about community solar? 
Yeah, I don't know specifically. I, I believe the answer to that question is yes, because there are incentives for every conceivable technology out there. I don't know specifically if there are incentives for buying electric vehicles. There are certainly in, um, economic, um, sorry, tax incentives for developing solar and using solar technology w- without question. You know, you mentioned that this uh, this package started at six million. It was trimmed down to, to three point five trillion, or six uh, trillion rather, trimmed down to three point five trillion. Now at one point seven five, uh, with a series of we can call them compromises. Were there certain cuts that you took issue with along the way? You see, I, it's still kind of an evolving process. We've talked about this before when I negotiate the NDAA. Um, you know, I don't draw red lines by and large when it becomes compromised. I mean, the answer to your question is, yeah. I mean, if, if, if I ran the world, um, you know, here's what I, frankly, the biggest thing I'd do is I'd, I'd raise taxes to, to, to pay for this, um, in a far more aggressive way. I mean, we're talking about rolling back the Trump tax cuts, which I think we need to do. Hell, I think we need to roll back a good chunk of the Bush tax cuts, um, you know, so that we can, you know, also better, better even out that, that balance, you know, but, you know, the way I approach legislation is, you know, the, the art of possible, right? Um, there's me, and then there's all the people that I got to get to agree with me. And I, you know, have long since given up on the idea that I know everything to begin with. Um, and second, you work with who you got to work with. You try to get the votes to get done what you can get done. And then hopefully you build the political landscape and you build the support so that then you have more people who are with you. Okay. And that, and that second part is important. I mean, we can, you know, curse the darkness as it were that we've got to get Joe Manchin's vote. And I would you know, spend a fair amount of time thinking, okay, how can we not have to get Joe Manchin's vote? Well, no, there's nothing on the table there. So we've got to get his vote. <laughs> yeah. um, and just so you deal with it and, and you try to put together the deal that you can do that to get, get the bill done. But then you also think about how can we get ourselves into a position where we don't need his vote? Okay, how can we build the support to, to, to win the elections? And, you know, in my mind at the moment, I, there's all kinds of negative examples of that. But I'll stay positive here and give you a couple of examples. Um, the uh, gun safety movement um, and what Gabby Giffords and, and others have done to really sort of build a base of support instead of going to a member of Congress from a district where there just wasn't political support for gun safety, but there was political support for the NRA and saying, you're awful and terrible because you're supporting the NRA, you have to vote with us, build the political base so that that member of Congress goes, you know what, you're right. Um, That's where my constituents are. So, and that's why my opening diatribe or dialogue or argument, let's put it that way, um, was focused on what's the message that's going to get us to the point where A, we're able to elect more progressive senators and congresspeople who will support these things, um, you know, and, and, and get it to, to, to move forward. And B, we don't undermine the ones that are there. So, you know, and I think there are better ways to do that than we've been doing that. But that's the mindset you have to have. Get constituents on your side. Members of Congress, and please believe me when I tell you this, because I know there's this sort of mythology out there that members of Congress only do what their biggest donors tell them to do. Members of Congress are far more practical than that. They want to get reelected. Yes, they do. But to do that, they got to get support of their constituents. Um, History is actually more replete with people who have outspent their opponents and lost than most people realize. The worst thing you can be if you want to get reelected is wrong on the issues for your constituents. So get those constituents 
to go to Joe Manchin, to go to Kirsten Cinema, and say, I want this. I, I, I care about childcare. Okay. I, I care about universal pre-K. I care about access to healthcare. Um, build support for those issues, and then, then we'll have a more user-friendly Congress to, to go further. Uh, but I do think it's great that we, we're driving the debate. We're making people think about these things. Well, you know, I, I'm reminded that Joe Manchin himself said, you know, you don't like it, uh, elect more progressives. And so I think that's a, that yeah. is a, fine, that's a fine directive. You know, this is an esoteric question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. There was a discussion over, uh, you know, cuts, when the cuts were happening, about whether uh, Congress should try to do less of everything across the board or just focus on fully funding specific programs. And you know, we hear an argument that it might be better to fund everything across the board with the money that is available for as long as we can, let the programs become popular, and then let the GOP try to undo them in the same way that they unsuccessfully tried to undo the ACA. What do you make of that argument? Yeah, it, it, I haven't definitively come down on it. As you're talking to me about it, and as I think about it, I'm more on the side of, you know, do more for shorter periods of time to build that incentive. Um, the problem with it that I have is the assumption is in so doing, we're going to lose the elections and the Republicans will be the ones who are in charge deciding whether or not to keep the programs going. Right. Um, I'm troubled by that <laughs> uh, because, yeah. you know, that they're, you know, that creates considerable risk. What, what I would say is, you know, do it in a way that makes it most possible that more progressives are going to get elected going forward so we can preserve the programs and expand upon them. Um, that's where I think the, the, the debate should be. And if we get to the point, because, you know, there, there are frankly a lot of people in, in more centrist districts who don't think that the BBB is good for their politics, okay, um, who think that it has become a partisan food fight that a lot of the arguments in favor of it, talking about how we have to do this because we need a revolution, we need big, bold change, we have to tear, that that doesn't play um, in, in their districts. And if that's the message, now I do think that the message that I started with plays in those districts, you know, but if, forgive me, if Bernie's showing up in these swing districts and talking about how we need big, bold, revolutionary socialist change, not gonna get there. So I think we need to think more about the message so that regardless of which way we go, we can sustain and grow these programs because we have popular support, not because we've done some legislative drawing to an inside straight jujitsu where we sort of trick the system into accidentally having to hold on to these programs because they're popular and therefore sustainable. You know, you mentioned earlier that this bill was meant to shift the tax burden, uh, you know, away from uh, the middle class and toward corporations, the uber wealthy. Uh, a good amount of that, as we know, has been stripped away largely by a senator from Arizona. What provisions do remain uh, in the BBB at this point on that? I don't know. What time is it? Um, <laughs> That sort of evolves and changes. At the moment, what they've focused on on the pay-fors is the corporate minimum tax um, and slight increases in higher income earners. And then we did get an agreement to try, drive down drug prices at least a little bit. It's really convoluted how we moved competition uh, into prescription drugs within Medicare, but it will save some money. Um, those are the main sort of tax incentives uh, that are sorry, tax incentives, tax changes that are there. Yeah. Um, I hesitate to bring this up, but 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 I should. There is one sort of thing that's problematic. There's actually a tax cut contained in what we're doing. 
and this is the salt issue. If right, you're right, right. With yeah. State and local it's taxes. State and local tax. Yeah. Here, here's my my plea to progressives. The only good thing about Donald Trump's tax plan was this. Okay, because what it does is it caps the amount of money that you can write off. It actually raises taxes. It raised my taxes. It caps the amount of money that you can write off for state and local taxes. And and a lot of people don't like that because their taxes went up. Okay, and I get that. But the taxes went up. In fact, there was a story just a couple of days ago that our plan is going to cut taxes for like, I don't know how many millionaires, but you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of millionaires are going to see a tax cut because of our plan, because of this change. We're raising the cap from 10,000 to 80,000. And I don't know if you're, and there's a lot of political pressure here. If you're from New Jersey or New York, I mean, I just made that whole speech about how we got to get people on our side politically. This is a tough one to get people on your side politically. From a policy standpoint, I feel it in my bones that we do not need to be cutting taxes for upper middle class people. We just don't. Okay, it's good politics. It's terrible policy, um, and that's you know driving a little bit of it. So maybe okay, if you got to raise it, raise it a little bit. But from ten to eighty thousand to write that off, I mean, if you if if you're making enough money that you're thinking about whether or not you can write off eighty thousand dollars, you're probably okay. Um, so just my two cents worth on that little tax. Point. Well, yeah, I'm seeing a lot of heads nodding as you say it. Um, so I, I want to shift over and, uh, you know, shift slightly and just really get into some of the politics of getting this thing passed. Now, you've touched on a lot of these points already, and I'm I'm about to ask you a question that's enormously frustrating, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, so, you know, in order for progressives uh, to vote for the BIF, uh, Congresswoman Jaya Paul got a commitment that once moderates got a CBO score, that they would bring the BBB to the floor and now we are hearing that Joe Manchin is talking about putting the brakes on this, uh, citing inflation concerns. Being in this position without the leverage of the BIF is precisely what progressives feared. What do you think can be done now? And I know you're frustrated with this, too. So I, I just I, I'm going to acknowledge that. Up front. What do you think can be done now to move things forward? Well, I think this is this always was very hard. Um, and I'll get to why it was very hard in just a second. Um, it was very hard because we. We did not have initially support of, we didn't have the votes. Okay. We didn't have the, as you know, I, Mark Kelly and Gabby Giffords were in town last week and I saw when we were talking about this. Um, and Mark said, you know, it says, well, we started at six trillion, so we have to compromise. And, and he said, well, you know what Joe Manchin says? Joe Manchin says he started at zero. Okay. So, you know, I mean, there just, there wasn't, you didn't have the votes. Okay, now that doesn't necessarily stop you from moving forward, um, but it, it makes it very, very difficult. So how do you build to the point where, where you have the votes? I think using you know, the mansion and cinema became invested in the bipartisan infrastructure deal. Um, so you could hold that out. All right. But like I said, you know, I, I don't think we're in a situation now where if we talks were you're kind of breaking down. Okay, so if we kill it, we kill them both. Okay. And on the whole, I think the bipartisan infrastructure bill is good if you can use it to leverage something great, but I think that leverage was gone. I just think, I just don't think it was going to give us a greater chance of passing the bill. Um, and I know that's what Pramila thought. That's why she made the decision. She was a lot closer to this than I was. And I, tr I trust her. I think she knows what she's doing. Um, so, so there's that. The thing that I would like people to think about, and this is where I start to get into trouble, is 
why? Why didn't we have the votes for this? You know, why either A, didn't we elect the people? Because we certainly ran the candidates in a number of different places that would have been more supportive. We had chances to win North Carolina, Maine, Iowa, I forget where else. Um, and we didn't. Okay. So why did we come to this point? And this is where I would hope that, that, that true progressives would really do a little soul searching and thinking about, okay, what's the message that works? Because the, the answer to my question, I know the, the two answers, the only two answers that, and by the way, I, I draw a distinction between progressives and left-wing activists. Um, so please understand that I draw that distinction as I'm describing this. There's only two answers. One, you know, we weren't big enough and bold enough. We didn't promise enough revolutionary, you know, left-wing, progressive, if you will, socialist change. So people stayed home. Okay, there's this mass of voters out there just waiting for a big, bold, revolutionary message. And you can tell by the way I'm saying this that I don't really believe that, um, that are just going to show up. That's answer number one. Answer number two is we were outspent. You know, the evil corporate interests came out. And, and the problem with that is neither one of those things were really true in 2020. You look at the congressional races that we lost. We outspent the Republicans. I mean, the one thing that the left, let's just say that, not progressive left wing, but the left in general has done a great job of in the last, you know, 15 years is they figured out how to raise money. Okay. You know, I remember Howard, Howard Dean was sort of the guy who kicked it all off, you know, that you can raise money by having a, a, a more left progressive message. So money's not the problem. All right. Nor is it, in my view, the issue that, you know, there's this vast array of people who just aren't showing up. I could go through a whole bunch of examples of why that's true if you want me to, but I'll just say that for the moment. I think we need to rethink the way we pitch these policies. Like I said, pitch it in the way that I pitched it instead of talking about revolutionary change. We've gotten very academic. And yes, and please don't overreact to this. We've gotten a little Marxist in how, how we've sort of looked at the issue. And I, you know, I, went to a Jesuit college. I took poli sci. I took a whole bunch of classes um, on either communism or more, a better way to put it is a robust critique of capitalist society. And let me just say, this is, I was very intrigued by this stuff when I was in college and sort of walking down that road a little bit because the critique of the shortcomings of capitalism, the way it creates haves and have nots, the way it concentrates power, really good. Okay. It's when he gets to the solution part that he kind of goes off the beam, in my humble opinion. So I hope we'll take a step back and say, what are the policies that are causing us to lose elections? Instead of saying, well, we just weren't bold enough, they didn't show up, they outspent us. Because I believe that there are some policies contained in that. Certainly, you know, crime became an issue. Education became an issue. In Virginia, for the first election in my memory, the Republican polled higher on education than the Democrat. Why? Okay. Was it because he was outspent? Was it because Terry McAuliffe wasn't, you know, I don't know what he would offer in education. And, and let me just say, Terry McAuliffe, not, not the best candidate. I completely admit that. And I do hope that the Democratic Party gets the past the point of recycling old white guys. Um, we don't need to do that all the damn time. There are new people out there that we can bring out that will present a better, better image. But the policies themselves were a problem. And I just, sorry, I could go on forever. I won't. I'll give you one example, okay? That, that most of my friends on the left did not acknowledge and did not see. If you had to ask me in the last, you know, ever since the pandemic started and the economics and 
what went in with crime and, you know, with, with protests. And then I think, you know, what the single biggest thing that hurt Democrats in 2020 and 2021 was the school issue and the fact that schools were shut down and please understand. Okay. I know the public safety and we shut them down in March of 2020 as inconvenient as it was and bad as it was, it had to be done. But the way we handled that issue, you know, not understanding how that impact parents. And it wasn't even just the decision to shut down schools and all the other requirements that came into it. If any parent, and I, and I, I had this conversation with, with our teachers union, if any parent came up and said, you know, my kids, you know, it's a real problem. You think we should just send our teachers off to school to die? You, you know, you know okay, what about, what about my kids? Okay, what about when I, I, I know what you're interested in, okay, and that's fine, and I respect that. Are you gonna work with me here? No. You know, you're wrong. Your, your kids should stay home. It, hmm, you know, that issue, not having schools open and, and not seeming to in, in understand how important that is really hurt us. And that is but one example of where we could learn from what happened in the last 18 months, deliver a better message and actually have the votes, have the votes so that we're not negotiating with Joe Manchin. You know, I, I really do want to, to talk in depth in a couple moments about, you know, messaging for the 2022 election cycle. And you're touching on so many. You're talking basically you're talking about the popularism argument. And I, I would like to delve into that a little bit more. Um, I, I want to talk about some of the things that are in the bill uh, the BBB that are broadly popular, but I do want to circle back on, on something Lael pointed out. She said, uh, I want to make sure that I, I get her uh, correct. She said, uh, investing in public projects does not cause inflation. I said that in my wind up to this question. Per reporting by the Washington Post, uh, a group of 17 economics Nobel laureates signed a letter saying the BBB would actually ease inflation, and then the CBO is expected to say that the bill will actually pay for itself. So I just want to kind of get that on record. Um, so, yeah. you know, uh, this is... Uh, this is an issue that touches on the BBB passage itself, and it also touches on electoral issues. So, so much of what is in the bill is so broadly popular. Uh, a recent Navigator poll, for example, uh, shows majority support for the provisions like lowering health insurance, uh, pre- prescription dr- drug costs, taxing the rich, expanding Medicare. First of all, I'll ask you, do you feel that public support is having any impact in passing this legislation? And then... Uh, if and when it does pass, what is the best way to convince the American people that their lives are being made significantly better because of these programs? Okay, there is a lot to unpack in that. Sure, Um, I know I threw a lot at you. And and, and let me start with the whole popularism thing, Mm -hmm. because that's not, very much not what I'm talking about. Okay, now when you're going out into a campaign, you certainly want to poll test ideas and in general, you know, you also get caught in a little bit of a trap because what, what tests well is people want their taxes cut and they want more money. And it's like, how do you balance? People want what is impossible to deliver and whoever is best at, at, at promising that without getting caught seems to win sometimes. Go ahead. Sorry. No, if you don't mind, I just want to give some context to what you're saying, because I was going to kind of unpack this a little bit later, but I just want to give people an idea who may not be familiar with popularism. So this was coined by right. David Shore. This is a stats guy with the Obama White House. Uh, he had some very, very accurate models. And so he got some juice that way. And his assertion is that Democrats now should be focusing on and talking about things that are popular and not focusing on and not talking about things that aren't. And and of course, the conundrum here is that if you don't engage on things like immigration, police reform, you risk losing the enthusiasm of the base. And that is the thing that energizes and wins elections. So that's that's the context behind that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, 
all of that is is kind of true. Um, and you, then you got to figure out what the right balance is. Messaging is not simple. I mean, everyone seems to think that, well, just come up with this message, it's popular. Message helps you here, it hurts you there, okay? What's the right time? How do you balance all of that? But but my, my general feeling on this is that, yes, I think it is it is true that we need to focus on the messages that, that work for us best. I mean, if you're trying to convince an audience, you've got 10 things that you believe, they like five of them, they hate five of them, we'll talk about the five that they like, okay? You know, I think that, that, that makes a basic certain amount of sense. But the thing that I think we need to more focus on is how it's not just so much a matter of whether or not the ideas are popular or not, and this is a subtle little difference, but popular or not, you know, they don't work, okay? And, 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 and they don't create a more peaceful, just, and prosperous society, which is sort of my base idea of what's going to work. There's actually a, a George Will column today about a book that someone has written about how, how progressives ruin cities is basically the take. But he looks at San Francisco and a lot of the individual policy decisions that were made. And, and, and on crime and on education, I think there are individual policy decisions that the, the left wing of the Democratic Party is insisting that Democrats advocate for that not just aren't popular, they don't actually work. I mean, I don't mind. I, I confess for the fact but that, that getting rid of tax cuts is not popular. But I'll figure out a clever way to do it if I can, because I know it works and it makes a difference. Okay. The types of policies that we're talking around criminal justice and education manifestly don't work to my idea and to my way of thinking. And the problem is when you try to get into that conversation and say, how can we improve upon this? You know, it is absolutely true that the, the, the right wing noise machine takes all of this and uses it as an excuse to ignore racism. That is 100% yeah. true, okay? It is also 100% true that a lot of the ideas that are being pushed by the left allegedly to address equity and social justice are not actually very effective at doing that or anything else. Both of those things can be true at the same time. And I think for the Democratic Party to be successful, we need to have that conversation and understand I do not presume right up front. I got in a bit of a back and forth with the Renton City Councilwoman a couple of days ago. She made some points I hadn't thought of. Great, let's have the conversation. You know, but if the Democratic Party position is, no, we will not have that conversation. We are right, you are wrong. You're just we, you're just restating Republican talking points. We're not going to get very far. So it's more than just popularism. Now, as to your point about the, the issues in here. They're so popular. How come Joe Manchin doesn't support it? How come all these other people don't support it? That gets back to what I think, what I was trying to say earlier. The presumption is these ideas are so popular that the only reason you cannot support them is if basically you've been bought off by corporations and you're corrupt, okay? I think the actual reason is, is because the politics of way the whole, the way the whole thing has been presented is not popular in West Virginia is not popular in swing districts. If you talk about it the way that I talked about it up front, about the importance of childcare, the important middle-class opportunity, the American dream, but the way we tend to talk about it is again, we have to tear down our society. We need a revolution, okay? Because our society is fundamentally racist, fundamentally corrupt, fundamentally imperialist, we should be embarrassed by what we have been as a nation. We must tear it apart and start over again. And if you don't get that, then you're just a person that I probably shouldn't even spend any time talking to. That is the message 
that a lot of swing voters in America hear. They don't hear, are you struggling with your child care? You know, do, do you think it's unfair that so much wealth is concentrated in the hands of so few? Okay, here's what we're going to try to do about it. So my opinion is the ideas are popular. The presentation that the, the leftward tilt of the Democratic Party has presented is not as popular as it could be. And then lest I lose all of you, let me just also say that centrists are reluctant, okay, to believe that they're wrong, just like everybody else, okay? So yes, some of that is, they, they've seen you go down that road before and it's just like, it always ends with us losing. So they don't think about it enough. So they get into things like, come on, let's, let's make prescription drugs affordable. Let's stand up for childcare. They see the bad stuff, they don't see the good stuff. But that's what we gotta try to do is to pull that coalition together because the message, sorry, the issues, I think are popular. We, we just got to figure out how to present them. And that's hard, okay? I, I've run a lot of very successful campaigns. And after the campaign is over, I'm like, oh, that was great. That was really yeah, but when you're in it, it's like, you face plant more than, more than once, okay? Well, this is going to work. You know, I, I once lost a debate to Jerry Getty. Um, and most people won't get that reference. Jerry Getty was not a terribly sharp individual. But I just, I, I stumbled. I thought, well, I'm right. He's wrong. He's crazy. Everybody knows he's crazy. So, eh, ooh, well, that didn't go well. You got to be really rigorous about how you approach messaging um, and not just say, my ideas are right. If anybody disagrees with me, you know, they, they're just not paying attention. So that is what I want to see us do. And if we don't do it in the next 10 months, rah, 2022 <laughs> is not going to be pretty. That, mouth, that sound that you just made uh, with your mouth, uh, I think, reflects what's inside everybody's hearts uh, right now in terms of fear. And, and, and I'm sorry, but, and that's the thing. I, I see us headed towards the cliff, okay? Yeah. And, 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 and when I'm screaming, stop, sometimes, I'm, sometimes I get it wrong. It's fine, okay? I want to be part of the process because we've got to work with everyone here to, to get us headed in, in a better, more positive direction. And, and the infighting at the moment in the Democratic Party is having the opposite effect. You know, th this is a, perhaps an overly simplistic question, but it's something that I consider a lot. When you get into these congressional year, these midterm races, it does become a little bit more possible, perhaps not at the senatorial level, but certainly at the district level, the congressional level, to tailor messages a little bit more so that they are effective with the constituency that you are trying to reach, correct? So there is some malleability to the messaging, right? Yeah. Well, I think that was one of the problems in Virginia is, you know, the only message, the, the only message that really brings the Democratic Party together right now um, in all of our disparate pieces, um, even those folks who sort of flit in and out of the Democratic Party, and maybe they're sometimes socialists, maybe they're sometimes independents, maybe they're sometimes that. The only thing that brings us together is Donald Trump is an awful human being who's trying to destroy the country and he must be stopped. So that is why uh, Terry McAuliffe settled on that message near the end. You know, if he tried to talk about, well, I don't support critical race theory in schools, but I, but I do think that we should talk about racism in the history of slavery. Ah, you're going to wind up irritating everybody with that message. What, you know, you're talking about critical race theory. That's a right wing talking point. You know, how come you're not paying attention to it? And the other people here that he's, you know, wants to talk about racism. So, about, yeah, you know, you, so you go with the Trump stuff. Okay. But what we should have learned in Virginia is it's just not going to play. 
Because what, what Youngkin did is he brought it back to, he started talking about stuff like a grocery tax, you know, he talked about, you know, education. He talked about those local issues. At the end of the day, the big picture stuff does matter, you know, but, but what really drives home a message in an individual election is what's going on in my neighborhood. Right. Okay, my kids aren't in school. All right. Um, you know, gas prices are going up. You know, we've got to give that message that really addresses the issues. And I think we do have that opportunity heading into 2022. What I'm worried about is at the moment, our message is Trump's a terrible, awful, no good, bad guy. And you have to vote for us because of that. <sighs> yeah, we're going to need more than that. We're going to need a lot more than that, given all the challenges that we face. I mean, the economic inequality, the pandemic, the economy, everything disrupted, racism, you know, right now, you know, most law enforcement officers are at odds with their communities, most overstatement. Too many law enforcement officers are at odds with their communities. And regardless of whether or not you're, you're for incredibly aggressive police reform or whether you just think we need more cops to enforce the law, that's a bad thing, okay? It's a huge problem in our communities. And if you're going to run for office, you better address it. The education system. I mean, what we just went through with 18 months of our kids, you know, not being able to be in school, not being able to interact with each other, the mental health impacts of that. You better have something to say about that, 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 that people in average communities can relate to. I do want to bring us back to the BBB uh, just in in so far as I think the passage of it will be enormously helpful for Democrats in 2022. Um, and, and I'll just ask you flat out, the White House continues to say that it's confident that it will pass. Where are you on that spectrum? Oh, less confident. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that, you know, if you're trying if you're trying to pass something, and, and let me just say, Nancy Pelosi deserves every accolade that she's ever going to get. OK, if there's anyone who could pull a rabbit out of a hat and make the impossible happen, it's her. Um, she has an understanding of the legislative process and an ability to move it forward that, that I have I have not witnessed in my 20, you know, my 30 years now in, in, in career. So I, I have confidence in that, you know, and I think the whole, you know, you got to push it down the road. Okay. Even if you don't have the votes right at the moment, keep going forward to put yourself in a position. So we're going to try to bring it up this week, next week. Sorry. Um, You know, once we get a little CBO score, it is worth noting that the centrists said, didn't say they'd vote for it. (laughs) They said they'd let it come up for a vote um, once they got the CBO score, um, which is, or more accurately, they said they wouldn't vote for it 100% if they didn't get a CBO score. So we still got to pull them across. And there's a lot of them who are worried about all the issues that I just spewed forth there and not perhaps the most you know well-ordered fashion that I could have, but you get the idea. Sure. Um, and then when it goes to the Senate, they're going to change it. Okay. It, they're going to go through their little voterama and the Republicans are going to be damn clever about throwing amendments out there that cinema or mansion, or maybe somebody else who has a pet peeve issue uh, um, and it's going to be changed. And then it comes back and are we going to accept what that change is? You know, and again, I think the general perception is at the moment our the Biden agenda, as you call it, is not popular in the country. So if you're in a district where you've already got a Republican running against you and haven't raised a couple million dollars and you're looking at a knockdown drag out for the next 10 months and you're thinking about whether this is going to help you or hurt you, we're not in the best spot. Um, the positive thing that I will say is. In my entire career, I have never had 
a major big gotta have issue when the Democrats were in the majority that at the end of the day we didn't pass. And every single one of them, every single one of them has had at least 15 times during the course of it when I was like, well, that's dead. <laughs> it's not gonna happen. Did you feel um, that way with the ACA, for example? Exactly. Oh, gosh, yes. ACA. I did a juvenile justice reform bill back when I was in the state legislature in 94 that I was convinced was going to die. Um, you know, the defense bill I felt was going to die multiple times. Um, you know, so there is that momentum. And, and, and I think, you know, what Nancy and others are going to sell really hard is the stench of failure is not going to be a positive thing. <laughs> One other point that I will make, however, is... This is my third time being with all the Democrats in charge. Every time we make the same mistake, we assume that we have to do something big, bold, dramatic. We got this tiny window in power. We've got to seize it. If people see us get something really huge done, that's going to give us our best chance of reelection. Now, I will say from a policy perspective, yeah, if you can move ACA, I mean, as bad as it was, it became a law and it held up. And if we lost a bunch of elections because of it, we got something out of it. So from a policy perspective, got it. But from a politics perspective, <laughs> the idea that that's what's going to help get us reelected. I've run in swing districts before. I don't live in one now. But um, the idea from a swing district perspective, anyone who, I remember Mike Lowry trying to convince me of that back in 1994. And I was like, what planet is this guy from? Um, cause I'm out there knocking on doors and that is not the message that I'm getting. Um, so yeah, it, it does, it doesn't help us, but at this point, having put the chips on the table and, you know, we're, we're better off winning than losing. And I think everybody knows that better off winning than losing. You know, it's, it, you, the, the laugh that I hear, and I, I know that this is, is, is gospel in, in the Biden White House, that if you continue to do good things for people, that you can bring around these, you can bring these voters back into the fold. Um, and I, I think, you know, you make a compelling pace, a case, uh, certainly the jury is out on this, but, you know, the, through your tenure in Congress, um, the trends don't look good. Now, look, I know we're right up against the clock here. What is your heart out? Uh, what do you need to be gone by? I'm fine. Okay. Um, well, you guys want to go a little over this? Well, I, I, I appreciate that because there were a few things that I wanted to, to get to, including some audience questions. I did want to ask about Joe Manchin's uh, Freedom to Vote Act. Um, and I, I would just say to everybody, yeah. I, I hate to keep invoking Joe Manchin. I, uh, <laughs> I feel like hey. he's going to appear like Beetlejuice, you know, if I, if I, if I keep doing it. <laughs> um, but so I will use that analogy. That's good. I like that. <laughs> good. But uh, you know, his response bill, this is his response bill to the For the People Act. It's actually a pretty good bill. But it doesn't, I was going to say it doesn't seem like, it is. there's no way in hell this is going to get 10 GOP votes. So is there a backup plan in the House? I, I've heard discussion of maybe breaking the bill up. What, what, what are you hearing uh, in, in the House on this? Well, we've got the We the People Act, and we've also got the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, um, both of which address the same subject, both of which are really important. And neither um, of which will pass the Senate. Well, you know, here's what I would do, Okay. I would press Joe Manchin on that point because I believe both of those bills have been pared down to the point where Joe Manchin says he supports them, but he does not support breaking the filibuster. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty, I know at least on the John Lewis Act, that's true. And he has also said on a previous occasion that he does not support getting rid of the filibuster writ large, but if he believes the filibuster is simply being used to thwart important legislation and to thwart the will of the people, he is open to the idea of a one-time, and that's what you can do, um, is a one-time thing. And I think our focus and our pressure 
and put the pressure on in, in a way that's going to be helpful. Don't chase people into the bathroom and videotape them as you tell them. Do not do that. Human beings, for instance. Yeah. Um, then I think you can continue to try and convince Joe Manchin that, look, this is voting rights. You support it. The Republicans are, are, are killing it in, in a way that you should not allow to happen. I think we need to make that case. And I want also folks to understand this. The Republicans have already, when they are in charge, the Republicans have completely gotten rid of the filibuster. All right. There's this myth out there that, well, the Republicans didn't get rid of it. Yes, they did. They got rid of the filibuster for everything that they wanted to pass. Right. Okay. Which is effectively getting rid of the filibuster. All right. Judges in the tax cut. They wanted, you know, they didn't want to pass anything else. They didn't care. All right. So we should continue to press the point that the filibuster must die. Um, I, I feel very passionately about that. And I think, I think there might be some hope that we could make some progress on that. So I want to shift over to audience questions. And we had a few questions about the NDAA, which I hope to have a dedicated uh, town hall uh, on because there's there's so much to unpack. But there was something that came up uh, concerning the NDAA. Which, this is National Defense Authorization Act. This is our annual defense budget. You are chair of the Armed Services Committee. You're hard at work on this. This is a must-pass bill. Uh, but there is a perception among uh, audience members, maybe a fear, that if the NDAA is seen as being prioritized, above the BBB that this sends a message that Democrats are prioritizing defense spending above all the historic good the BBB will deliver, all the stuff that we've talked about. How do you respond to that? Yeah. First of all, I'm, I'm going to throw a caveat at you. I have an irrational level of distaste for Chuck Schumer. Okay. It, it, it was kind of well-earned in, in that I tried, I had to work with him for two years and his staff was like, they, they leak stuff to the press in our private negotiations to try to undermine me and try to make themselves look good and us look bad. We've done it for two years and we tried to fight our way around it. So as I give this answer to the, and it is irrational. Okay, there's a rational it, You're, you're making a pretty good case. <laughs> there's a rational. rational portion of it that's justified, but I'm normally a very calm person and I accept the world as it is. I, as I've told you many times, I had three and a half years worth of psychotherapy that helped me get to that point. But where this subject is concerned, I get a little irrational. So if, if I say something a little over the top about Schumer in this, in this response, I apologize in advance. The first thing I will say is under no circumstances will the NDAA ever take precedence over the BBB. If I was God and in charge of that decision, I wouldn't give it precedence over the BBB. And I 100% assure you that Chuck Schumer in the Senate will not. So the idea that that is even possible is ludicrous, okay? Okay, it's just ludicrous on its face because it's Chuck Schumer's decision, all right? And he's not gonna, he's not gonna do that and I'm not gonna do it. Nobody's gonna do that. The second thing I'll say, the Senate Armed Services Committee passed the defense bill, their version of the defense bill at the end of July. Okay. End of July was three and a half months ago. That means that they had three and a half months in which to pass the Senate bill off the floor, or sorry, the defense bill off the floor of the Senate. They didn't do it. All right. And I watched this and I was like, guys, we got work to do here. Conference reports. It's not like writing a term paper the night before. Okay. A lot of work to be done here. Can we get into it? Well, we're working on it. Okay, whatever. I don't know. And I left it to Jack Reed and we go, guys, go ahead and figure out. I can watch this, watch this. Okay. But it's still not happening. So finally, I, I called up Chuck Schumer's person, um, who was the one who was consistently leaking stuff to undermine me and said, hey, you know, what's up? Eh, 
yeah, you know, we're, yeah, yeah. You know, didn't really give me an answer. I said, well, why? What's going on? Well, you know, we'll get to it when we get to it. You know, it doesn't take any time at all to do that. It won't be a problem. <laughs> you know, so I said, well, I, I got to talk to your boss at this point because that just doesn't make any sense. Now you can't do that. Ah, so now what I have since found out is that in Chuck Schumer's mind, he thought that it is possible that the NDA could potentially be used as leverage against Manchin. Okay. In the first place, I find that hard to believe that that would be the case, all right, that Manchin would, you know, I mean, yeah, I don't know if he's got anything in the NDAA or not. Last time I looked, it didn't seem that he did. Um, but okay, if you want to do that, and this is why I wanted to talk to the guy, okay, is if you want to do that, then let's actually create some leverage. Because understand what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about passing the defense bill into law. I'm not talking about off to the president for signature. I'm talking about getting us into conference so that we can begin the process of creating a bill. And if you want to leverage Manchin, pass the damn thing off the floor of the Senate so that we can get into conference. And what happens a lot of times with the NDA as the last train out of the station, people come up with ideas at the last minute and they're like, oh, we need a vehicle. Okay, well, we could put it on the defense bill and frequently we do. So if you have something and Manchin says, well, I need this. Hmm, we got a vehicle over here. But Schumer killed the freaking vehicle, okay? You know, you can't take a hostage and then starve it to death in the basement, all right? Because then you don't have a hostage, okay? And I would have loved the opportunity in a more calm and patient and thoughtful way to have walked through this with the Senate Majority Leader. He decided not to take that opportunity. So now we don't have a defense bill, okay? We're trying to negotiate it on the side. And, you know, and even now, I mean, this week, they're supposed to bring up the defense bill. Well, we're not going to pass the BBB bill before the end of the week. But again, if we do, and if we ever get to that magical point when the Senate actually considers the BBB, well, fine, set aside the defense bill. It's been three and a half months. And again, I think the reason he did this is he had this vague notion that there was leverage, okay? And, and the line that I've used, and I'll use it on you, and I don't know, maybe it'll show up in the press at some point because you'll leak it, um, but I've been trying to save it for later, is Chuck Schumer is a not very good checkers player engaged in a game of three-dimensional chess. And it is a painful freaking thing to watch. So that is why we have a problem. There is no scenario, I will end where I started, there is no scenario where the defense bill takes precedent over the BBB. Period, full stop. Uh, we do have a chapter who is very active in New York that uh, actually has Chuck Schumer's ear. We might be able to snip out some of that and, uh, and put it in their hands. Um, so okay. uh, we had a question about Afghan refugees. As you know, um, there are a number of Afghan refugees who have um, uh, landed in uh, Western Washington. Uh, Deborah asks, what can you do to address the employment obstacles of our newly resettled Afghan neighbors? Many cannot get proper documentation. Yeah, there's a whole series of layers to this. Um, the good news is here locally, we have a very strong community of support. There are a variety of different community-based organizations that are being set up um, to offer, you know, 
housing, food, you know, job training, um, and all of that to sort of help those Afghan refugees make the, the difficult transition that they're going to have to make. Um, and then, but then there's the legal side of it, which you just outlined. And the biggest problem right now is the vetting process. There are so many of them that quote, didn't pass the vet upfront for one reason or another, and now they're in limbo. I just think we, we've, we've got to get answers to those questions and we have to have, I think, a more flexible vet on this, um, you know, to get, get the State Department more engaged. I think the best thing, and I, I've been a little frustrated, and I know publicly a lot of people have been frustrated that the State Department has not done more, number one, to get um, the SIV holders out of Afghanistan to begin with. Um, now it's incredibly difficult now that now that we're out of the country. Um, and then second, just as they're spread, the ones that have gotten out, the ones that are refugees in a variety of different places around the world, to get through those legal issues, you know, because you're able to give more support once you get the actual documentation um, and they're legally in here. So we, gosh, my, my caseworkers deserve, you know, whatever bonus we can give them because they have, and, and, and same is the case with congressional offices all across the country, we've been inundated um, with, and we've been able to help, you know, one by one by one to get that documentation, to get them here. But it's really something where we, and it's a tough problem. And let me just say, I, you know, I like Tony Blinken. I like what they're doing over there for the most part. I think a lot of people have underestimated how difficult this is. But we need to work with the State Department to try to make sure they're given the, the, the best support they can so that they can get settled. And then some of our local organizations can really offer them the help that they need. I know that these uh, individuals who are working with Afghan refugees would love to be connected with your office. And so with your permission, I would love to kind of make that introduction. Um, yeah. Just a couple more questions, and then we will let you go. Martin asks, will you please meet with National Infrastructure Bank Coalition leadership to learn more about H.R. 3339? Uh, sure. Absolutely. My staff's on. I, I don't know what that is. Um, I, I've heard about the National Infrastructure Bank. I have not heard specifically about that, that bill number. But yes, I'd be happy to have that conversation because, I mean, that's the other thing about the infrastructure bill is, you know, and, and just like it's true on the BBB, I think it's true on the, infra the other infrastructure bill. Um, it certainly could have been bigger. I mean, the, the need is, is, is greater than that. And by the way, I do agree with that economic analysis that you stated earlier, you know, the idea that BBB or infrastructure is contributing to inflation, I don't agree with that at all. Well, that, that, that wasn't me. Those were 17 economics uh, Nobel Prize winners <laughs> who were cited in the uh, in the Washington Post. Yeah. Um, so one last, uh, well, I, I will just actually, you know what, l l let's do this. So I, I will just mention to folks, we did get a lot of defense-related questions, and they were very, very detailed. And these are the sorts of things that I think really deserve much more airtime than we were able to give today. Um, and so we are looking to do an NDAA uh, town hall down the line. So please stay tuned for that. Um, Congressman, before I let you go, I just get some final words for you. Um, and. and <laughs> I just want to acknowledge that there are a number, a great number of indivisible members and progressive activists who are just feeling enormously burned out, feeling powerless to impact anything at the federal level. I'm wondering if you have any, any words that you can share with folks who, who are feeling burned out right now. Yeah, I mean, two things about it. Don't, don't underestimate the progress that has, that has been made. I mean, the, 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 you know, Trump did not actually institute a fascist takeover of the country. And I know that may seem like a small bar, bar to jump over there, um, but that's really important. The movement that organized last year to try and stop that 
um, made a huge difference. And I personally think that we were a lot closer to the edge of that cliff than most people realize. So don't, don't end, underestimate the importance of that, number one. Um, number two, you know, the COVID response. You know, we, we were able to appropriate about $6 trillion. And I can tell you every day, um, you know, I, I know the food insecurity, the housing insecurity, the economic insecurity, that made a huge difference in the lives of individual people in, in, in a way that you should not underestimate. Um, so I, I think been, been successful in, in, in that regard. And the second thing is, um, you know, you, you, you can't do it all. Um, that's a cliche from a long time ago. It's a lot easier to save a village than it is to save the world. Um, and I think you can get caught up a lot of times in seeing all the bad, terrible things that are going on in the world and feel, pers feel personal responsibility for it, okay? I have to do everything I can to fix this. Um, but give yourself a mental health break. Uh, don't have to solve all those problems. I was, uh, actually, I did, I think this is a funny note. I mean, maybe people don't think it is. One of the great legislative battles that they're trying to talk about whether or not to include in the NDAA right now is what to do about daylight savings time. And, and this is like, this is almost a religious thing between the people who think that we should stick with daylight savings time or that we should get rid of it altogether. Most people agree that we shouldn't be bouncing back and forth, go one way or the other, but they're like, yeah, you know, it, 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 into, the, it, into the whole thing with, with, with a level of enthusiasm that, 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 is, that is hard, hard to manage. Um, but I, and we were talking about sleep. I met with a group of sleep disorder people who said that they argued passionately that we had to, uh, it's embarrassing, I forget which side of it. No, no, it was, they, they're in favor of getting rid of it altogether. Hmm. And that, you know, getting rid of it altogether is the best thing you can do for sleep. And they made all these arguments about how lack of sleep creates all these problems and does all these things. And I disagree with them on that. I've yeah, I was, really, maybe that's why I'm an insomniac. Yeah, this is yeah, exactly. the problem here. And what I told them was, I said, I said, look, I used to have trouble sleeping. Um, this is a whole part of my anxiety issue and everything. But part of what, you know, helped me here with my psychotherapy and other discussions was, you know, the key to getting to sleep is to realize that, you know, you're not going to solve all the problems because that used to be the thing that kept me up. A thought would occur to me. It's like, okay, I got to solve this. I got to, I got to get through it. I got to get to the answer or, you know, how can I possibly go to sleep? And what finally helped me was the idea that that's not going to happen. I could stay awake for the next hundred years and I'm not going to solve everything. When I get up the next morning, problems are still going to be there and I'll go to work on them and that's okay. You don't have to solve absolutely everything before you can relax. You have to have a certain measure of faith in the broader, broader universe. Do what you can, okay? And you get to the point where it's like, you know what? I'm not going to go knock on doors. I don't want to make phone calls. I need, a, I need a couple of weeks off. Take it. Don't burn yourself out. If you get to that point, don't burn yourself out. Take a break, whatever you like. I like sports. You know, go watch a football game. You like to ride your bike, riding your bike. You like working on your car. There's got to be something you enjoy that isn't related to the greater problems of the universe. Um, take time and, and, and do that. And the, those problems will still be there when you come back and, and you can get to work on them. Sage words. And I, I just I want to thank you for being transparent about your anxiety issues. I am somebody who has suffered from anxiety and depression his entire life. And I am finding now that we are at an inflection point where uh, major athletes, uh, you know, celebrities are coming forward and saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with these issues and it destigmatizes it. And I think when we destigmatize it, it really takes a lot of the power away from, you know, yeah. the, the, this oh, hold God, that it yes. has over you. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and let me just say, by the way, 
it's, it's, it's an overstatement to say that there are solutions. Yeah. Like, you know, if you just flip a switch. But there are all manner of different things you can do out there to make it better. Yep. They really are. Um, and if you become more aware of that, because when you're in that situation, that's the biggest feeling. You know, I, I've always been a problem solver and I've always felt like no matter how big the problem, I'm going to power my way through it and I'm going to find a solution. And then I looked at this and I was like, yeah, when I would go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist, most of the time as I was filling out the endless form that was going to you know, somehow inform this guy, <laughs> I'd be like, what is this guy going to possibly say to me that's going to make any difference whatsoever? Yeah. I couldn't imagine it. There are things that can help. There really are. Um, And it may not seem like it, but there really are. Well, perfect words to conclude on today. We appreciate you going a little bit over today and being so generous with your time. Um, as always, thank you for your work. Thank you for for your, your representation. And really just, uh, you know, thanks for joining us today. We, we really do appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate the dialogue. And thanks to Indivisible. I mean, the organizing that you're doing is is moving us in the right direction. Not, you know, we, we'd all like it to be faster, but it's it's making a difference. And I appreciate what you do. And that'll do it. Thank you to Robin Gittleman, Louise Pathé, Kevin Jones, Connor Stubbs, Glenn Carpenter, and Sarah Servine. The executive producer of the Town Hall series is Kat Pipkin. If you would like to see a video replay of this Town Hall, head to facebook.com slash washindivisible. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and the email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.